to say that the podcast for your big questions get real answers my name is matt king i'm your host here in the city of chicago joining us here is jed brewer totally healthy totally normal also joining us all the way from mercury tennessee lee younger yeah it's fine i feel like lee's was more realistic but jed's was more aspirational i feel yeah. like that's the kind of balance that makes this show a winner that's what we're looking for <laughs> absolutely we have a great show lined up for you we have some of your great questions but first we, I'm going to declare a surprisingly wholesome emergency lightning round. Ooh. Wow. They're not all going to be this way, but there's a couple of things. You know, I have my little emergency folder here, which is basically my bookmarks on Twitter, which I'd like to thank Elon <laughs> Musk for making it weird that now all these people posting random weird Christian stuff can see that I bookmarked it. That's making my life better. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's full of horrors, mainly. Um, the kind of stuff we talk about on this show, but there's a couple that came across my face recently that are, and they're weird because they're still Christians doing stuff on the internet, but sure. Um, it's it, a slightly different flavor where they normally deal with. One is, uh, I just sent these guys a clip, a, uh, what appears to be a young American lady, uh, standing with what looks like a backpack in front of the sea of Galilee, very excitedly making a TikTok, saying we're here at the sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on water. And you think, well, this is going to be bad. I don't know how. I don't know what's going to happen. But something unexpectedly unpleasant is going to happen with this American Christian person talking about being at the Sea of Galilee. And then she turns around and she has fashioned a backpack uh, cheese ball. You know, the cheese puff kind of Cheeto ball uh, dispensers. She is fashioned with PVC pipe and like a three gallon jug of these cheese balls and is wearing it on her back. <laughs> she declares that she is going to celebrate being in the Sea of Galilee with a cheese ball. Yeah. And here's the thing, dear listener. And we all looked at the, I sent this clip of the guys before we started and we all pretty much agreed on. And gentlemen, tell me if you have anything to add. Um, This is weird. Yeah. Yeah. But better than I sure. expected. Totally. Wholesome. One yes. might even say. I mean, it's a, it's a. You know, Bible study speaking, it's a weird take on the feeding of the 5,000, but we'll, <laughs> we'll allow. Sure, sure. You got to modernize these things sometimes. Um, my main question is, being that I'm going to guess she flew to the Middle East, was this her carry-on? <laughs> that is an excellent question. Because it is, again, a homemade thing where she got a PVC pipe and a lever that is a cheese ball dispenser. I, I don't imagine she made this on site, so I'm picturing her getting that through airport <laughs> security yeah. on the plane, and the and the flight attendant is like, "Ma'am, would you like this complimentary bag of peanuts?" No, sir. I'm good. I, as you can see, I have a three gallon bucket of self dispensary cheese balls. <laughs> it, it does need to last me the whole week, so I'll take some of those crackers if you have them. Gotta go slow. However, I am going to the Sea of Galilee, so they may just multiply. <laughs> That's right. Or I may, weirdly enough, uh, be the first person to add salt to the Sea of Galilee by dropping <laughs> cheese balls in it. <laughs> I, I do think there's a good heart here, though, in, like, the idea of cool thing should be celebrated with cheese ball. Like, I would like that in my own life. Yeah. I mean, if I had a person with me, just like... That's a cool thing just happened. Cheese ball. Like, I think that would, that would improve the quality of my life. Yeah. Well, okay. So Jed, I, I grew up a Baptist, so I would assume that, you know, naturally anything that I enjoyed that had anything to do with Jesus, there would be somebody there that would try to show me that I haven't really enjoyed the experience that of it, course. It somehow could be better and, and thus ruin the experience. So if I were at the Sea of Galilee and I had the cheese ball dispensary and I was like, I'm at the Sea of Galilee, I'm going to celebrate this with a cheese ball that, you know, uh, some deacon so-and-so would show up and say, how come you don't have flaming hot Cheetos? Oh, Ooh. oh, that's good. So I that's thought that was going to go in the direction. I thought it was going to be that. Are you celebrating being at this holy site or are you just excited about cheese balls? Oh, right. Kind of a, you know, we brought you to this camp where there's fun stuff to do, and we got you here by telling you there'd be fun stuff to do, but now we're going to guilt you about being excited about the fun stuff and not the two church services a day. <laughs> Young lady, are you celebrating Jesus or Jesus? <laughs> Somebody had to make that joke. <laughs>
And yeah. I respect Jed for being the one to uh, put himself out there and jump on that particular comedy grenade because it had to be done. We get kicked I'm out a, of the podcasting union. I'm a public <laughs> servant, y'all. I'm a public servant. That's right. <laughs> so on that, let's pivot to uh, less wholesome, but I still think in the in the vein of you know what, all things told, this could have been a lot worse. Uh, this comes to us via me hitting the wrong app on my phone several times. Uh, this comes to us via a fresh food, which I'm assuming is some kind of supermarket, in uh, the fine city of Claxton, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. Here's, here, let me tell you a little something, a little Georgia secret about this show, dear listener. Uh, Lee and I are mainly familiar with the uh, parts of Georgia you, you drive through down I-75 if you're driving from like Tennessee to Atlanta. So if we recognize a part of Georgia, you can think, oh, that's like a place you stop that's on the highway. If Jed recognizes a part of Georgia, <laughs> it's not near anything. Yeah. That's the part of Georgia Jed's familiar with. So I'm going to assume that's the case in Claxton. Yeah. yeah so you may have walked into your local supermarket and seen, you know, they make the displays and seasonal. It might be something, uh, you know, they might have red and green uh, waters out and they make a thing for, for Christmas or whatnot. So our friends at these fresh food in Claxton, Georgia, the food fresh, pardon me, uh, made a display out of 12 packs of soft drinks. <laughs> and what they went with was not one, but three crosses made out of soft drink containers. And here's what I'm saying. That's weird. Okay. I'm going to we'll start that right up top. That's a weird thing to do, but they put the workmanship in. It must be said. There's like negative space off to the side in all of them to represent the shadow. They put what appears to be a halo made out of a uh, yellow Fanta around the one that represents the one that Jesus was hung on. They somehow like draped a purple cloth through the main one. Yeah. Yeah. And as we often say on the show, this is a thing you should not have done, <laughs> but um, unlike a lot of the things that should not have been done on this show, uh, this could have gone a lot worse. Yeah. This yeah. will move some so well, will this move sodas or will people feel weird about uh, removing part of the true cross so that they can have a frosty <laughs> beverage? I I do think it's interesting. I, I have zoomed in on the picture and uh the backdrop of the whole thing has been made with um with looks like uh just Coca-Cola classic. Okay, so the if you're trying to picture this image in your mind, dear listener, uh, you know, big red background, the crosses themselves have been made with uh PIB. Oh, wow. Yes. Which I assume is the only brown one they had. I believe that's PIB extra. PIB extra. So I'm not we didn't, sure how we'd... the fine purveyors of Mr. PIB would feel about that. I'm just wondering what the theological implications are of going with, Pib instead of Dr. Pepper. Is this like the is this like the Unitarian version of of like soft drink evangelism right here? Well, again, I don't want to trade in stereotypes about Christians or Claxon, Georgia, but maybe there's something they don't trust about a uh, a soft drink that got its postdoctorate degree, its postgraduate degree. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Pib hovers for the people. That's right. Yeah, um, and here's what I wonder. Did they start off with this artistic vision and then build it around? Or did someone realize, hey, Mr. Pib Extra is brown. And that's what the cross was. And we got some yellow, we got some red. I, You know what, Dan? I think we've got a project here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, again, it's weird. But you have to respect the workmanship. But I am now questioning just its efficacy as a as an end cap kind of unit mover. You know, I love the idea of a person who's like, man, I don't even care. I'm thirsty and it's happening and just starts disassembling this display for their own <laughs> beverage needs. Yeah. Sure. Just pulls one right out of the middle of the main cross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, by his stripes, we are healed. And also Mr. Pib is four for five. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got two, two examples of people. Doing things that they probably should not have done, but they put in the effort and they came away with something. You know what? You got a delicious cheese ball. You got your 
your uh, end cap of sodas made and up. And so let us close with someone who just shouldn't have done a thing. <laughs> this comes to us via a Twitter account that I can't remember how I got a hold of, uh, but it crossed my face somehow, called The New Protestant. Uh-oh. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Now, in best case scenario, that's like an, a newspaper from Salem in the 1600s that started in the 1700s it is now. It is not that. Uh, here's the good news. The good news is that it only has 137 followers on Twitter, even though they paid Uh-oh. for the checkmark. But here's, what, here's a strong opening bid from apparently a new up-and-coming uh, bunch of weirdos. And this video is delivered by a gentleman. I want you to picture in your mind a guy who would be the pastor of something called the New Protestant. Do you have that in your mind? You're correct. Yeah. <laughs> As a nerdy-looking white guy with curly hair wearing a uh, checkered button-down with a blue navy blue crewneck sweater over it with the lav mic and the whole deal. And they say, through careful study of God's word, we've become convinced that faith alone is not enough. However, we recognize the possibility that we might be wrong. This is why we are making our appeal to you, the evangelical pastor. Visit our website and read more. I'm not gonna. I'm good. This is the worst clickbait I've ever seen in my yeah. life. Yeah. Like, so you're, the claim starts off with through careful study of the Bible, we have decided that that thing the New Testament very clearly states in several places is not what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 could be wrong, but we're not. Um, do you want to come over and check out what we might be wrong about, but we're so not wrong about? Yeah, that's that's the the confusing thing to me is the. But we could be wrong. We decided that all of <laughs> the fundamental basis of kind of Christian thought for at least the last four five hundred years, and probably the whole two thousand, a uh, thing that. You know, it pretty clearly says, not by works, but by faith you're saved, you know. Whereas we're in the Easter season, kind of the bit, one of the biggest texts that people bring up when they talk about uh, salvation is nothing we could do for ourselves, is the thief on the cross who literally couldn't do anything. He was nailed to a piece of wood. Jesus very clearly says to him, he'll enter the kingdom of heaven. So you're going, you're nope, it's not that. It's not that thing. It's totally different. You've all been lied to. It's, a, I assume, some kind of vast conspiracy. I'm on their website now, newprotestant.com. Um, so here are their, uh, like the headers across the page where you can click on stuff. Home. Okay. Manifesto. Ah. Oh. The new pro versus old pro gospel answering objections. So it feels <laughs> like you should, have, you should come out pretty strong if you're making this kind of take. But then immediately go, but we could be wrong. Come visit the website. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that thief on the cross could reach his wallet, guys. Absolutely. Yeah. I've clicked against my better judgment on Manifesto. Okay. You're now on an FBI watch list. Yeah, here's a great call. If you're a white Christian evangelical at this point, say maybe don't have a manifesto. Maybe that's no. a bad idea. Don't put your manifesto on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Stage sure. of faith that that'd be better. Yeah, what we're about about us just, and I don't have a lot of um, confidence in our nation's law enforcement, even at the federal level. Um, I've you know met a number of law enforcement officials in my life in various capacities, and I've never uh, law and order is not the way things normally really happen as far as having yeah. the expert detective skills. But if you just make a website and put a manifesto tab, I think they can find that. (laughs) Here's what they say. Similar to Martin Luther's historical 95 theses that sparked the Protestant Reformation, the purpose of this manifest is twofold. Manifesto is twofold. To engage in public dialogue with evangelical pastors and theologians. Two, to spark a new Protestant movement or Reformation. I like that either one, whose author is Jesus, not Paul, whose counselors are the early church, not Martin Luther or the Reformers, and whose satoriology originates from Judaism, not Roman Catholicism. That's a lot of red flags in one sentence. Yeah. At this point, anyone using the phrase specifying Roman Catholicism. Yeah. That's weird. Yep. Um, 
I'm I'm here's here's I'm and without being too uh blame about it, I'm glad they seem to have uh, something positive to say about the Jewish faith because didn't necessarily see that take that as a given. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. Um, for every best I can tell, for every point on their little thing, and I don't think they have 95, but I'm not going to scroll long enough to find out. Uh, there's they have like basically a paragraph of text. And then a big old list of verses, and then a bunch of quotes from early church people, and they're really stretching the definition of early church here because a couple of these are from 400 AD. Um, this is like the most annoying guy at a seminary at a seminary just <laughs> kind of Voltron together and became sentient. <laughs> I did get through, by the way. There are seven, and. Yeah. I don't agree with a lot of stuff Luther wrote in a lot of capacities, but you can't question his commitment because he put down all 95 of those. Oh yeah. And had wrote plenty more to boot. Um, this just seems lazy. <laughs> Again, we, we seek to undo everyone's un- mainstream understanding of Christianity we're going to re- taking Paulian theology out of it. We're going back to basics. We're going back to the church followers. I figure we can get this done in seven bullet points. Yep. Hey guys, we figured it out. All we did was wipe out half of the new Testament. <laughs> we have a, a knowledge that is secret to some people. No one in Christianity has ever tried this before. Again, how much money do you want? Yeah. Not much. They only got 139 Twitter followers. Well, I, I don't think that. this is, I don't think this has stirred the, uh, the fiery controversy and discourse they have hoped. Also, I don't think Martin Luther's goal was to engage in public dialogue with pastors and theologians. I think he was just really mad at the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like you said, you have two bold goals. The second of which is to spark a new Protestant Reformation. The first of which is, you know, just to get some engagement with some posts. (laughs) I think to tie this all together, their time would have been better spent building a soft drink based diorama of the crucifixion (laughs) than writing whatever this was. They could have finished that, celebrated with a nice cheese ball. Yeah. And we all would have been better for it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and on that, we will declare emergency off. Mm. All right. We're going to jump to your fine question. If you have a question for us, hang out with us all the way to the end. I'll get some ways to get in touch with us, or you can scroll down to your episode description, click the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, What is with this weird fixation that some people ha- seem to have on the violence of Jesus' death? I guess it's supposed to be very moving, but people talking about it in gory detail just weirds me out. Am I missing something? Uh, I think it's a great question as we roll into the time of year where we're going to be hearing a lot of Easter sermons and Good Friday sermons. And uh, if you're around that stuff, you're gonna, probably going to get a, a fair amount of that if you haven't already in this season. Lee, I think it's a great question, and I really appreciate throwing the humility throwing it in. Am I missing something? Because it seems to go a lot and people get into it and there's writing about it. One thing I will point out as we get into this discussion is I think Christmas and Easter and maybe more so Easter, even like really good pastors and people who are normally pretty much keep between the lines, something about preaching on the same thing every single year leads to this, like trying to find a new angle and dial it up. Right. And with combine that with maybe people who watch the passion of the Christ and Hey, that seemed really successful. We get a we I do agree with this. I characterization of a weird fixation. So as someone who has put together and thought about a lot about kind of walking people through this time of year um, and what they're supposed to get out of it, where, where it can come from, where it can go, where do we start with this looking at this aspect of it? Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, man. I think there's a couple of important things to keep in mind, and there might be some 
there might be some historical things that sometimes pastors are responding to that we can understand contextually. Um, But for the most part, it should be said that it's possible that folks, that certain pastors out there are involved in (laughs) some light or maybe not that light emotional manipulation. They want you to feel something. He is risen, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't feel bad about what happened before that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is a this is a kind of thing where it's like if, if I, you know, if I describe this in in painstaking detail and, and with all the gory ins and outs of of what happened to Jesus physically, then you'll feel so bad about it, then maybe you'll think twice about, you know, whatever it is that you do that you shouldn't be doing. Okay. So, for you know first of all that kind of that kind of preaching has no impact it has no effect that's not the way human beings change their behavior the people do not change their behavior over a long period of time based on guilt or emotional manipulation that's a that's a bad motivator um so that's one thing if 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 that's happening to you you might want to look around for you know for somewhere else to go to church um one very key element to understand here is the Bible doesn't talk about the gory detail basically at all. Uh, there are, in the sense that there are a couple of you know Old Testament prophecies that that deal with a couple of things that happened to Jesus that are pretty intense, and um, you know, and, and Matthew especially tells us about some of the the elements of the things that happened to Jesus before he went to the cross, but without variation. When it comes to the crucifixion itself, the four Gospels simply say they crucified him. That's it. Yeah, they crucified yep. him. Um, you know, we we find out some things he says from the cross, and then we find out how uh, you know how he expired at the end of his life. But the 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 level of detail that we get is that Jesus sacrificed his life. He shed his blood. He was crucified. Um, that's, that's the level of detail we get. We don't get all of the, the medical, uh, ins and outs and the gory details. I will say that it is potentially historically important for, uh, you know, at certain times for people to have talked about the fact that, Hey, all the things that happened to Jesus physically, there's no way that he could have survived the cross. And, and you might be listening to that and you're saying, well, obviously, why, why are we talking about that? Well, there there was historically a a theory um, that Jesus didn't actually pass away, but that he merely fainted, and his disciples got his body and cleaned him up and nursed him back to health, and then presented him as someone who had risen from the dead. That was a thing that happened. Um, as far that was a theory that was that was given from people that did not believe that Jesus died and rose bodily, historically, physically from the dead. And so it's potential, there, there's a potential out there that some people have gone into some of the medical details of what happened to Jesus bec- as a way to dispel that kind of a, you know, theory or whatever. Um, and that's called the, historically, by the way, that's called the swoon theory, that Jesus merely fainted or swooned, and then he was presented alive after kind of being nursed back to health. But m- most importantly, and and most typically, when this kind of thing happens, it's because pastors want people to feel something. Yep. And, and it's because they want, I mean, the bummer is, is that for a lot of these dudes, um, for a lot of these speakers and preachers, they potentially don't know what it actually looks like to speak to the feelings and the situations and the lives of the people in their congregations and to set them free and to encourage them in a in such a way to live that they actually that they turned have tos into get tos and, and and show people how to live a different life and and sh- and give people access to the kinds of tools that will actually bring about real change in their lives. So they go for the sensational. Yep. Uh, for for most folks, this is a sensational tactic because they feel like if I make you feel bad enough, now, um, if you you know. If you have a love for Jesus and you um and part of your experience of the liturgical season of Lent is to remember the things that happened to him, and that causes you 
to to get into a state of worship and and uh, affection for the Lord and all that kind of stuff. That is totally cool. What we're specifically talking about is this kind of emotional manipulation being used from the pulpit. The last thing I'll say before I kick this off is it's very important that you remember in the biblical witness itself, there are so many unbelievably horrible things that did happen to Jesus in those in those last hours of his life, and he let them all happen. He volunteered for every single piece of it. There was only one moment where he literally called a timeout, and he said, don't do that. And that was when he was making his way through the city toward the place where he was crucified, and there were people who were um, weeping for him and feeling sorry for him. And that's when he literally pulled the the e-brake and said, hey, stop that. Don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. I bring that up to say this idea that we that somehow our lives are going to change if we feel sorry for what Jesus went through, that's the one thing that he didn't actually allow to happen when he was in the, the process of his own passion. He was saying to people, that's not going to help here. I'm doing this on purpose for a reason. So the, the feeling sorry for me is not what we're doing. Let's do anything but that. So when we hear this kind of sensational preaching about all the gory detail, let's remember the biblical witness does not do that. And Jesus himself said, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I'm doing this on purpose. Absolutely right. I think uh, among the many great points Lee made there, one that's definitely worth uh, sticking is the idea of, yes, it is. There are some things important to the narrative, important to the, the kind of overall tenets of this faith. And the fact that Jesus died is one of them. Um, but I, I think con- kind of to contrast what he's describing there with people kind of going the other way, trying to prove that by going into, you know, I looked up crucifixion and here's how you die and you rub your spinal column against the thing and all that. Um, I'm thinking of the Apostles Creed, which simply says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. Like, yeah. yes, it's in there. Eh, we don't necessarily have to draw all the color in there since it's there. But I think Lee did a great job of breaking down a lot of what is very commonly going on behind that. And Jed, I'd love you to pick us up there and look at maybe the back half of this question or the implied part of, am I just missing something? Like this, as, as Lee points out, people are doing this probably mostly to get an emotional reaction. Yeah. Some people have an emotional reaction to it. Um, so our, I think it's good to kind of take that journey. Our question asker is putting us on of, is there something to that? Am I wrong? Are they wrong? Does anybody have to be wrong? What, what's going on here in that respect? Well, here's just one layer that I'll add that I, I think may be helpful to think about, which is preaching is another form of media communication, right? It's, it's a person kind of standing up and giving some combination of it depends on on the preacher, but storytelling and um, exhortation and motivational speaking and a bit of humor and maybe there's poetry, you know. But it's preaching is a form of communication, the same way that songwriting is a form of communication, that filmmaking is a form of communication, that stand-up comedy is a form of communication. Here's why that matters and why I bring it up: is you're allowed to like what you like. And you don't have to like what you don't like. Like in stand-up comedy, if you're like, man, I really love Brian Regan and I really don't like Bill Burr. That's cool. When it comes to music, if you're like, yeah, I really dig Nickelback. I don't really dig corn. That's cool. There's really not rights or wrongs with these things. You're, you're just allowed to like what you like. Um, and the same thing actually goes with preaching. You know, if, if there's an approach to talking about the Bible that kind of on a stylistic level, it just connects with you and it engages with you and you get something out of it. That's great. And if there's another approach to kind of talking about the Bible that just doesn't really connect with you and doesn't really, um, do anything for you, that's allowed, man. That's totally cool. I can tell you as a person who both consumes a lot of different types of media and also creates a lot, I really don't like any form of media that has an implicit message you have to be impressed now. I really, really, really don't like that. That always mm. rubs me the wrong way. And I think that happens actually, I see a lot in modern filmmaking and I really, really don't. We spent so much money on CGI, you have to think this is good. But I don't. I don't like it. It doesn't mean anything to me. And I think there's hey, a, a lot of people worked hard on that. 
yeah, I don't, I don't care. I, I don't like it, you know? Um, and I think it's a similar thing actually with a lot of preaching of like, dude, I gave you three points and a poem and a graphic depiction of capital punishment. You have to be impressed by this. I did research. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't, I don't have to be impressed by it. Um, I mean, if it's working for you, that's great. If it's working for other people, that's cool. But like, dude, this is a form of media communication, you know, uh, again, you know, poetry, I'm I'm allowed to to like Shelley. I'm allowed to to not like um, T. S. Eliot. It's it's fine. So, I think for you, um, if it's not your jam, if it's not your bag, giving yourself permission to be at peace with that and recognize there's not some sort of spiritual meaning to the fact that it doesn't really do much for you. That doesn't make you less of a Christian. It just means that's your aesthetic sense. Yes, I'm really enjoying uh, Jed, arbitrary T.S. Eliot hater. Sure. In the room, the women come and go. I wish you'd go. This poem sucks. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way those. This, this is the way the world ends. I wish this is the way the poem would end. <laughs> All those anti-T.S. Eliot bumper stickers on Jed's car makes so much more sense now. That's right. That's right. You lost me with cats. Wasteland, more like the crap land. What does that even mean? What's he referring to? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, great points by by both of these guys, and I I really like that point Jed was making. Of you don't have to like any kind of preaching. You should hopefully you like most of it where you go, and you know what you encounter. But also, you don't have to like it more just because it's Easter. Mm-hmm. Like. Maybe your your pastoral team are good people. Maybe the person who does the speaking is really great most of the time. And maybe you think, yeah, it's trying a little too hard on the on the big ones. Or I don't. That's fine. You don't. Have, this does not have to be the best one of the year for you, just because no. it's a a holiday. Just because there's stuff uh, bound up in it. You make a generous point too, Matt. To to the preachers out there, which is you know you get to Easter. There's like five or six little stories that you can pick. So if you've been a pastor for a long time, it's like you're going to cycle through. You're going to have to talk about the same thing, and 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 that can be a difficult prospect for for pastor, you know. Yep. Um, and we can be understanding about that. I think that's another thing is like Easter has to be amazing. It can just be another time for us to get together and see the people that we care about in our community, yeah. and 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 we're worshiping. Yes, this is the this Jesus rose from the dead. This is the central thing that makes us who we are. This is why we meet on Sundays. But it doesn't have to be the the greatest, you know, rhetorical moment of a of of dude's life. Yeah, and if you're a, a pastor listens to the show and I know we have a few um this may be a bit hard to swallow, but it'll be freeing if you can onboard it. No one remembers what you said last year at the Easter service. Yeah. <laughs> you can give the exact same sermon and no one will notice because it was a year ago. As long as you set him free, brother. Yeah. If it's good, that's fine. No one, no yeah. one's going to complain. Here's what you could do. Uh, and I'm just going to throw this out there because I've done a lot of preaching at this point in my life and I've heard a lot. If everybody knows the basics of what you're going to say, you can just be shorter. Hey, you don't actually have to find an amazing way to surprise them with a thing they didn't think you were going to say. They know you're going to talk about the resurrection. That's fine. That's what we're doing here. That's cool. You, you don't, you, you could just, again, do less setup that way. You can start in the middle. Yeah. You get them to the buffet faster, brother or sister, whoever's preaching out there, they're going to think it rocked. Yeah. Uh, and just similarly to take it out of the holiday, uh, see also weddings. If your opening yeah. line could be, well, we all know why we're here. That is an indication that we can, we can shorthand some of this and just get to the parts that people came to see. It's what brought us together today. <laughs> today. Exactly. One of the greatest, one of the greatest wedding homilies of all time. It's only like 45 seconds. <laughs> Memorable as all get out. All right, with that said, we're going to move on to our second question here. It comes in and says, how do I identify the line between someone asking me to do something and trying to manipulate me? I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's a really interesting question off the back of the first question, actually, in that there is saying things that have emotional elements or fraught elements, and there are 
both in like a sermon capacity, but also in, um, you know, just interpersonal communication. And then there is the act of trying to leverage those to get someone to do what you want. Mm. And I do think, especially for folks who were raised around people who were doing a lot of the act of leveraging, the just those things existing can get a little murky in a totally understandable way. If you were raised in a way where you were constantly being manipulated, when someone says, oh, I'm having a really rough day, and you go, Oh, well, I don't, I, am I, are you mad at me? Is there something I can do? What are you like? No, I'm not actually not that I don't you, you put your wallet away. I'm just having a rough day. And I, w- I was telling you that because it, it is the truth and we are friends. Um, but I think again, those, those lines can get a little crossed a little easily. So Lee, where do we start off with trying to draw some distinction between I am hearing words that give me a feeling and someone is trying to make me do something based on that feeling. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I, I don't know if we're, I don't think the question asker uh, pointed this directly at like church or ministry stuff. Is that right? Um, no, not specifically. I, I'm going to talk about some of that sp- specifically to church and ministry stuff. It can be tough in a church or ministry's uh, environment because, you know, a lot of times these are organizations that take a whole lot of effort and a lot of things have to be done and a lot of initiatives have to be followed up on. And there's sometimes, you know, a very small staff. Sometimes the staff quote unquote are bivocational people that have other jobs and basically everybody's a volunteer. So sometimes there's a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of stuff to do. I don't think that you would ask the question unless something didn't pass the smell test. So we want to start there, which is don't ignore your instincts. If if instinctually you feel like, wait a minute, that feels like in some way maybe a line has been crossed or we're in a gray area somewhere, I think I think you should ask yourself a few questions. I'm going to give you a couple of questions. Jed and Matt may add some more questions to the list, but let's start here. One, is this a reasonable request based on our agreed relationship? So is this a reasonable request based on our agreed relationship? Let me give you an example. Um, there's a guy that, that um, I, I lead a lot of music at the church where I, where I pastor. And um, there's a guy that plays in our band who's a very gifted keyboard player. If we're in the middle of a song and I turn around to Mark and I say, dude, take a break right here. What I mean is I want Mark to play a little piano solo. And, Dude's capable of doing that. He loves playing the piano. He's awesome at it. And he'll give me a little nod and he'll start playing a piano solo right there. And it'll be awesome. And that'll be fun. That is well within the bounds of our agreed relationship. I'm leading a band. He's awesome at playing the keys. He loves doing it. That's a great thing for me to ask him. If I was to say, Mark, let me borrow your car so that I can drive to St. Louis this week, which I need to do. And I don't want to put the miles on the tires on my car. Well, that's a little weird. Yeah, that's a little. That's yeah. a little different. That's a. Or if you were to go up to someone on the street and say, "Play the play a key solo, play it now." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, that's that's question number one. Is this a reasonable request based on our agreed relationship? Okay, that's that's a great question to ask. And then this is an even deeper question, and I think you should ask this, especially if you get to feeling that instinctual kind of hinky feeling. Okay, this is a big question. Who benefits? What this person is asking me to do, who benefits? Is this something where you benefit and I am doing something strictly for you? And this has nothing to do with me whatsoever. This is about you being the hero or you being the star or whatever. There are some people in your life when, if the, if the question is, I don't know if I'm in a situation of manipulation, that's a very, very important question. If you can look at a certain relationship and realize This person always gets me to do things that highlight, spotlight, and put them in the the hero space. And whatever I do, this is purely always for this person's benefit. That's a massive red flag. So those are a couple questions I want you to deal with when you think about, when you start having that funny little feeling. Is, Is this a normal request based on our agreed relationship? And who benefits? Let's start with those kind of parameters and see what you think. That's a fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, I think, can we add some more 
we're never obviously going to fully draw this into a, we're not going to give you, be able to give you a formula, Yeah. but can we draw some more strong indicators of if we're having a reasonable conversation with someone where emotions and maybe harder things are involved or if we are in a manipulative situation? Yeah, man, absolutely. So here's the next one that I would add to the great stuff that Lee's already given you is when someone asks you to do something, is this an invitation or is it an insinuation? Those are very different, but they can sound pretty similar. It's an invitation or an insinuation, right? So someone says to you, hey, I'm having a party at my place this Friday. I'd love if you'd be able to be there. So, you know, if you can, stop on by. That's an invitation. There's a thing that's going on. You've been invited. It's great. And they're basically saying, would you like to do this? An insinuation isn't far off from that, right? And an insinuation would be more like, hey, I'm having a party on Friday night. Man, I've put a lot of work into this. And I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I've dropped some serious coins that there's good food and drink. So, like, hey, uh, it'd be great if you were able to come. So I'll, you know, see you there. That's not all that different, you know, from a certain standpoint. But the feeling behind it is completely different. It's not. Smells different. Smells different. Instead of (laughs) would you like to, it's shouldn't you ought to. And wouldn't you like to versus shouldn't you ought to are very, very different things. Now, I love what Lee said about the idea of would this be reasonable within your relationship? Because, like, if your boss insinuates that you should do something, that's not really manipulation necessarily. That may just be kind of poor leadership. Like, the boss would just tell you, we are having a social event. It is a part of your job requirement to be there. I will see you there. But there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable with that. And so they express things in weird ways, even though it it is kind of their prerogative to say something. I like the idea of it, that leadership style coming, but with everyday work tasks, like, man, we got a, got a lot of product in the back room. People can't buy back there. (laughs) (laughs) Man, sure hope that gets on the shelves. And anyway, how are you doing? What's wrong with you? You doing good? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, glad you're doing good. I'm going to get back to the back room where there's all that product. Busy. Yeah, all that product in the back room. <clears throat> okay, so the, the other thing that I don't want to encourage you to look at is, you know, one of the ideas that, that comes up when you look at manipulation is the idea of boundaries. And you've heard us talk about boundaries on the show before. Um, there's a, a great writer um, named Henry Cloud, who has a book about boundaries. If that's a new concept for you, his in the book's title is Boundaries. Um, it's definitely worth reading, definitely strong recommend. But one of the things that it's a phrase that comes up in, in the book is for people to love your yes, they have to love your no too. And what he's saying is when people really love you, they love you, not just that you do what they want. And With that in mind, I think it's worth asking yourself pretty regularly, would this person actually be okay if I said no? Mm. Would this person actually respect and be okay and not hurt and not aggrieved if I said no? Because if we're not sure that we've got the freedom to say no, then there is something funky going on. That could be something within ourselves. I mean, that could be an artifact of our own thought processes. That could be the nature of the way this person interacts with us. That could be something to do with this particular thing. But that's a really good warning sign is if you don't feel the freedom to say no and to say no where there will be no consequences relationally from that, we want to track down why we have that feeling. Because, again, it it could be you as opposed to them. But either way, we want to be very cautious about situations where we don't feel the freedom to say no and do something else. I think that's fantastic uh, from both of these guys. I think to Jed's point of an ask or something tangible being in those, I think that is another good indicator. Um, If someone wants something from you and is reasonable in the context of your relationship, then they should feel comfortable or feel up to asking you to do something for them. There's a manip- part of manipulation is trying to get something without having to do that part on your own. So if if uh, Lee turned to uh, Mark in the band and just kind of stopped playing guitar and just kind of looked at him like, 
I mean, it's the people like music, but what are we to do? Yeah. <laughs> That's not, it's not a healthy communication style. And I think there's, again, especially for maybe people who were brought up in manipulative environments where that may have been uh, people who had uh, some level of authority, like a parent or a church leader or teachers or coaches who manip- try to kind of communicate through manipulation. It has a whole lot bound up in it that I don't want to discount, but really this core manipulation is just a really bad communication style. As someone trying to get something without any in, any risk or any vulnerability or any intention on their end, they're trying to get you to volunteer to do something in a certain way. Uh, maybe that's because they don't want to ask. Maybe it's because they think that you wouldn't do it if you weren't all uh, emotionally uh, hepped up on something else. But I think these guys have given you a lot of really good kind of litmus tests for what's going on there. And as ever, if you're ever in a specific situation, you have any follow-up questions, feel free to reach out to us. All right. We have one final question for you. It comes in and says, ah, to uh, a point brought up earlier, I feel like I hear the same Easter sermons and readings every year. Is there any detail or aspect of the Easter story that you particularly like? I think this is a great way to round out our Lenten season here on the show. And again, uh, I will go back to uh, nothing wrong with hearing the same story every year because that's the story. So that's <laughs> fine. Uh, but I do definitely like the idea of for yourself looking for something else to grab onto. If there's maybe you've been going to the same church, reading the same devotional, you know, the, your entire life or since you came to faith. So you're just looking for kind of a different angle or a different, uh, so something to fill in something else that I think is, is really awesome. So Lee, what do you have on this? Um, yeah, just a couple of thoughts. One is, um, you know, I, I like all the, I like it all. I mean, that's me and, and you don't have to and, uh, and everything, but you know, I, and I'm a person that grew up in church. I've heard a million sermons and I've, I've heard, you know, uh, Easter sermons for, for, now 43 years i'm guessing so it's i've i've heard quite a few of them folks um i i love the story um and I, and i'm grateful for it i'm especially grateful when someone thoughtful um is able to communicate the story to me in a way that encourages me to engage um and and think about it in a new way or not not necessarily change it or or anything like that, but just encourages me to think about it in a fresh way. I I always loved um, for years. Um, you know, I, I'll brag on Matt for a minute. I, I've I've always loved the way that that like for instance that that Matt uh, like at Christmas and at Easter in particular would do episodes of the the Bridge Podcast where he just told the story of Christmas and Easter and gave us some new angles to think about some things. It didn't add anything to the story. It just brought his perspective to it. I like it when people are able to do that. I like reading writers, um, and and I like listening to songwriters who can take who can who can basically do that. Uh, Matt has in the past few years has turned me onto a a writer that he loves called Fred Beekner, and we've talked about him on the show before. Uh, he does the same thing for me as well. He doesn't add anything to the story. He just tells the story in a way that that. Uh, that that helps my engagement with it. I will say this. I, I think you bring up a good point. It is probably the same readings and the same subject matter every time. Somebody's going to talk about, you know, the two people walking from Emmaus who met up with Jesus, or somebody's going to talk about, you know, Peter telling Jesus that he loved him three times after rising, you know, after, you know, rising after Jesus rose from the dead or whatever, it, you know, Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus and Jesus calling her name. There, there's only a few stories. Um, but let me just Take this opportunity of your question to talk about something that's important. Um, good preaching is pre and and I've heard a lot of preaching. I haven't heard as much preaching as Jed because no one's heard as much preaching as Jed. All the preaching, <laughs> but heard, um, not listened to. Uh, yeah, An important true. distinction. <laughs> I've heard a lot of preaching. L- let me, let me make a distinction real quick. Good preaching means uh, that wasn't boring. And it didn't, and it wasn't hurtful. It was fine. That's, that's good preaching. Let me talk about what great preaching is. Great preaching is someone that cares about you, who understands where you are and says something about Jesus that sets you free. It says something about God that sets you free. 
Yeah. That's great preaching. That's the difference. You could go into a church and you could hear something that's not boring and it's fine and it's not hurtful. And that's great. That's good preaching. That's no, no, no congregants were, were, you know, were injured in the process of this church service. That's fine. Great preaching is someone who in putting together a message on the old, old story once again about Easter or Christmas or whatever, and we've only got so much material to work with, takes the time or takes the prayer or takes the care or the conversations to find out what are these people going through? What's holding them back? What is the difficult thing that they need someone to speak into or, or, or even just to understand, to normalize, to say out loud, and how can you help? Now, somebody takes the time and the care and the relationship to do that. Now, that's a service I'll sit through. That's a service I'll be glad I went to. You took the time to think about me, understand my situation, and then you told me something about God that set me free in some way and brought me into this next week, feeling a little bit lighter about what I'm going through or giving me a couple more tools to deal with the situations I'm facing. Thanks, man. You really helped me. And that's what separates good preaching from great preaching. A great, great place to start that off. And Jed, what would you close us out with here? Well, I'd actually pick up exactly what Lee is saying, which is the thing thing that I am asking, and it's actually subconsciously the thing that literally every person is asking is, what does this have to do with me? Yeah. What does all of this say about my life? Because, dude, here's the thing. I don't live in first century Palestine. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to, and no matter sure how they have cheese balls, apparently, apparently, <laughs> uh, it, it, even aside from the cheese balls and no matter how well produced the chosen is, and I, I understand it's a, a very well produced show. I still don't live in first century Palestine. I'm still not going to. So like, what is, what does this all have to do with me, man? What I find is that I live in an age that is very, very, very angry. I live in an angry time filled with outrage where religious people believe that the power to dominate others is the path forward. And so what does all this have to say about that? Because that's where I live. I don't live in Jerusalem. I live in Angerville. What does this have to say for me? And it actually turns out quite a little bit. I'm going to read you a sequence of verses that for me are pretty cool and pretty inspiring. So we're going to start with an inspiring. From Passion Week, um, this is Matthew 26, uh, verse 53, Jesus talking, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? This is a comment that Jesus is making when he is being arrested, fraudulently, is about to be taken and publicly shamed and mocked and beaten and ultimately murdered, again, all of it on trumped-up charges, all of it totally bogus, and someone decides, well, what, what this situation calls for is me to be a hero, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out a weapon and try and go to town. And Jesus makes this amazing point, of like, I don't need that. I have the power to stop this. I have the authority. I have the strength. I've got the juice to end this. That leads us then to um, another great passage, also from Jesus. This is John 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own, which is something that Lee referenced earlier in this episode. Jesus saying, "You, nobody is dominating me. No one is overpowering me. I am choosing to give something. Now, this idea of strength under control, this idea of power, but power intentionally constrained, that's actually the definition of the word meek. Um, Meek is a word that that was used by um, other writers in antiquity, and that's what they meant was strength under control, power chosen to be constrained. So let's go now to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. This is Matthew 5. Jesus says something interesting. Blessed are the meek, Blessed are those who have power and choose to be restrained in how they use it. Blessed are those who have the ability to take revenge and choose not to. Blessed are those who could overpower and dominate their enemies, and they don't. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they will inherit the earth. One more verse, because it's going to tie all this together. The end of Passion Week. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. 
Jesus is about to say a few words before we get to the come again. This is literally the Great Commission. This is the end. This is Matthew chapter 28. This is verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I was meek and now I'm in charge. I laid down my life and now the earth is mine. I told you this is what was going to happen. This is what happened. I had power and I could have used it to save my skin. I didn't. And now I'm the boss. I could have gotten myself out of trouble, but I chose to do the hard right thing. And look where we're at now. It's the literal salvation of the world. In my own life, I need encouragement that in this age of anger and outrage and domination, that there is another path and that that other path works. I need to know that there's another way to live and that that other way to live goes somewhere. That's what I see Jesus demonstrating to me in Holy Week. A fantastic stuff. And I would, uh, the thing I'd throw in there is echo just kind of on that same sense. Uh, uh, I won't go through the the full quoted passage because it's very long, but uh, to Lee's point, I do often read, read from Frederick Beatner this time of year. And one of the great Easter passages he has is basically drawing a contrast between Easter and Christmas and just the way they're celebrated, the way they're thought of. And one of the things he points out, which I think is very interesting, because he's like, he's a, he's a writer, he's an author, he's a very literary person. So he's thinking in terms of narrative. He talks about how the, the Christmas narrative is very well constructed. It's foreshadowed through the Old Testament and there's songs and there's, you know, uh, the peril of the escape and there's the people coming and it all kind of walks through, particularly Matthew's gospel, kind of very neatly. It all gets to this point where it happens. It's very well constructed. By comparison, the descriptions of the resurrection in the Gospels are just chaos. They're fragmented. They're poorly, kind of poorly written from a storytelling standpoint. They, they all have aspects that other ones don't have. Most of them that aren't the book of John just kind of skip most of it and just say, yeah, he's dead. Now he's not in that wild anyway. Um, <laughs> here's where you see you. But John, the book of John is the one that, that definitely gives us the most full picture of kind of what happens after the, the resurrection. And to Jed's point of it's very interesting of what Jesus chooses to do. If you just look at the headings of Jesus appears to, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. First thing he does out of the tomb is comfort a crying woman. Yep. The next one is, is he goes to a room where people who think their lives have just completely become devoid of meaning because the guy they were following got murdered. He appears to them in a room, the disciples, and tells them to basically take care of each other and to go out and that they do have purpose. They do have a mission in the world. Then he appears to Thomas in a, a scene that I think gets really mischaracterized as Jesus being very aggressive. Um, it certainly seems, if you just look at what's on the paper, that he comes in and uh, answers Thomas's question. Yeah. Opens with peace be with you. Says, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out put your hand on my side, stop doubting and believe. And then in the end, he praises Thomas and says there's more coming. So I think that often gets mischaracterized as rebuke. It seems like he's answering a question that was posed to him. He then reinstates, he then hangs out and eats breakfast with everyone on the beach with the miraculous catch of fish, and then goes through the fairly long process of reinstating Peter because Peter just doesn't get what he's trying to say, which is often the pattern with Peter. But to that point Jed was making, he's risen, he has conquered death, he has taken his, his, he has fully kind of shed the humanity and the personhood that he had. And he's, he's in a very little God mode at this point. He does not appear to a pilot and say, oh boy, did you screw up? He doesn't, uh, <laughs> doesn't appear in the emperor's palace in Rome and tell everybody this is what's going on. He's with the same people he was with. He's having individual interactions. He's not answering any big questions. He's not telling them the secrets that they need to know to go out and do this and the other. He is being uh, present with them. He is having conversations about things that went on in their lives, equipping them for what they need to do. It is this amazing, just as a story, it's a fantastic contrast between if it is true, and I and we on this show believe that it is literally true that Jesus died and was resurrected. It is the most consequential event in human history. It is the only time that's happened. It is, you know, from a spiritual and historical standpoint, somebody, death, there's nothing more 
formative, more final, more definitive to our world than death. It literally structures life around itself. That got upended. And then this dude went around hanging out with people, having conversations, eating with them, doing the most kind of mundane things as God. That's bonkers. I'd love to give you <laughs> a super cool um, end of the line sermon about what that means and what that means for you and what that means for Christianity. I have no idea what that means, Yeah, but it's pretty darn cool. And I think that you're allowed to have your takeaway from Easter be, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's a perfectly legitimate takeaway from uh, the resurrection of Christ. So we'll leave you with that. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that totally anonymous with our own Easter edition, we're going to take out with a song by Lee called Break of Day. Thanks for listening. Just remember we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs>